0: Give ear to the reading of God's holy word, Psalm 58. To the choir master, according to do not destroy a mictam of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's Uh, Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you. We thank you that you have not left us to grope around in the dark, to understand, to figure out who you are, what you are like, to figure out the way of salvation, and to see how you would have us to live and even how to pray, but you have given us all these things in your scriptures, in the word of God, and so we ask this morning that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit once again, that you would work in us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray amen well this psalm psalm 58 is in kind of a grouping of psalms you know you might you might never have ever thought of this but the psalms have a structure to them and very often uh, there are groups of psalms that have, the, have have a theme running throughout them and psalms 52 to around 64 are all psalms of David in which he cries out to God concerning the wickedness of his enemies. Sometimes he cries out about people betraying him. Sometimes he he cries out to God about Saul uh, persecuting him, things like that. Well, here in this psalm, which some of it's a little hard to to even to translate and to interpret, but in this psalm, uh, most believe he has unjust judges or wicked rulers in view. Those are the, the, the wicked that he has in mind, in particular in this psalm, and I would say that being the case, if he's if this psalm is about the wicked uh, who are rulers and judges among us, uh, I don't think it's all that hard for us to identify with much of what David prays about in this psalm. In fact, I would say, uh, you know, if if I were to say the word politics, most of you, maybe all of you, your immediate reaction is probably a negative one. If I were to say the word politician, or governor or not not picking uh, people in particular president whatever a lot of you have probably have a negative emotional response to those to those words if if i were to take the average uh politician or government official and ask you would you buy a used car from this person i'm guessing most of you would be rather hesitant we don't have a lot of confidence i think sometimes with good reason uh, these days in our government maybe that's been the case in all times, in all places, we're, we're kind of by nature suspicious of other people who might have authority. We don't like people having authority over us. So some of our our, our unhappiness about politics might just be our, our pride. We don't want to have somebody else telling us what's what. Well, Proverbs 29.2 says this. It says, when the wicked rule, the people groan. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And I think that's something that David is dealing with here in this, in this Psalm. This Psalm of David breaks down into three, it breaks down pretty clearly into three sections, and that's kind of the outline we're going to follow is the outline that the Psalm itself gives us. And we're going to look at three things, Lord willing. The first thing is David's description of the wicked. David's description of the wicked, these unjust judges, and that's in verses one through five. The second thing we're going to see is probably the thing that might make us the most uncomfortable, many of us, is David's prayer of imprecation against the wicked in verses 6 through 9. He doesn't just describe them. He prays for God to judge them. He prays for God to put a stop to their wickedness. And that's in verses 6 through 9. And the last thing is, in in verses 10 through 11, we're going to see God's just judgment upon the wicked and David's praise of God for that. David looks, kind of looks down the road by faith and sees God's justice being carried out and praises him For them. Well, let's look at the first thing. David's description of the wicked. It's found in verses one through five. There, David says, Do you decree? He he addresses the people he's talking about in the Psalm. He says, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No in your hearts you devise wrongs, and your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Now, David inquires of these unjust judges. He calls them gods uh, in, in verse 1. And the reason that, that most commentators believe this is what they're, he's talking about there is what does he ask them? He asks them if they truly decree what is right or righteous and whether or not they judge the children of man rightly. That's a, This is a rhetorical question, right? David's not asking them, hey, do you guys happen to do this? What's, he gives the answer already, what is it? The answer is is no. He answers his own question in verse 2. He says, no, in your hearts you devise wrongs, and your hands deal out violence on the earth. So their, their evil isn't accidental. They plot it in their hearts, and then they carry it out with their hands in what they do. Now, you might think to yourself, you know is this overstatement is is david kind of being exa- is he exaggerating for effect if you think of unjust judges or rulers you might wonder you know how it is do their hands actually deal out violence on the earth is david kind of saying things uh, above what's really happening after all you know if they, if all they're doing is making decisions and and judgments and maybe you know legislation how are they how are their hands working violence is that even possible are they, guilt, are they really guilty of violence that David accuses them of here? And I, I don't think it should surprise us that David says it the way that he does. If you really think about it, how much ruin and misery and bloodshed and death has often come through the unrighteous decisions of unjust judges and rulers? David's really not exaggerating much at all. In fact, I don't know if you were listening uh, when, when Rob, before his prayer, mentioned uh, Scotland and the persecution of the church in in uh, back in the Reformation, uh, decades of the Reformation and, and the decades after that. Uh, the persecution of of the church was often done through the government, through the government that people were were put to death. Uh, how often does do unjust rulers cause others to fight unjust wars? How many have unleashed the power of the state against their own citizens, resulting in, in literally in bloodshed? You think of any time in history, you think of Paul's day, Nero, Nero ruling Rome. Nero was a crazy person. Nero was an evil, wicked man who had people uh, put to death, who had Paul himself put to death by the sword. You think of World War II, you think of Hitler, you think of Stalin, you think of Mao. After that, you think of uh, all kinds of people in the Middle East, different rulers that that terrorize their own people, that murder, put to death, anybody who opposes them in any way. In our own country, one only has to consider the outcome of the action taken by the U.S. Supreme Court not really that many years ago, back in 1973 when I was a young boy. You know, that's that's within most of our lifetimes here. With some exceptions, you younger folks, that's before you were born. But many of us were around, even if we were kids, back in 1973, 45 years ago. It's about one generation's time in our Supreme Court in in the land that we like to think of as as you know righteous, and we're going to celebrate July 4th. And I'm not here to bring a downer on that uh, this this coming week. Uh, but what did they do with the Supreme Court? They ruled that many of the laws around our country that limited or criminalized the practice of of abortion. They decided that it was unconstitutional, that those laws couldn't hold. And so they unleashed the floodgates of abortion. And what has been the outcome of this wicked decision? And that's what it was. The death, the murder of approximately, since 1973, uh, some counts have it around 60 million babies killed in the womb. 60 million in 45 years. Hard to get your mind wrapped around uh, by comparison, Adolf Hitler's Third Reich, you know, an evil regime, if ever there was one, uh, they're responsible for around the murder of, of some six million Jews. We've lapped them ten times over, all with babies. It's hard to imagine that. Our nation has sanctioned the murder of ten times as many babies as Hitler murdered Jews during World War II, all within my lifetime, all within most of your lifetimes, In just over 40 years, somehow we've come to think of this, hopefully not you in this room, but have come to think of this as normal, acceptable, just the way things are, or even worse, people act like this is the way they've always been. That to change that would be some you know, earth-shattering decision, even though this only has been around for about 45 years, that it's been thought of that what is wicked has been made legal. Well, making something legal doesn't make something right or righteous in God's sight. In other ways, how many have seen to it that the innocent are wrongly convicted of crimes, even capital crimes, sentenced to death, falsely accused, falsely convicted? Even the Lord Jesus Christ, we looked at this last week and and weeks previous to this. Jesus Christ himself, the one sinless person, the sinless Son of God, was persecuted and his death was plotted by whom? Who plotted Jesus' death? Very similar to what David's talking about. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, Plotted Jesus' death all through the Gospel of Mark. If you've been here with us, we've been going through the, the Gospel of Mark early, early on in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter three, verse six, it says they got together and plotted his destruction. All the way through Mark's Gospel, what do you see? You see the the, San, the members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, the ruling court in Israel, plotting Jesus' death, and finally having him put to death by wicked men. You could say that David's experience of persecution that he writes about here at this, in this Psalm, uh, you know, at the hands of Saul and Saul's counselors and other uh, government officials was kind of a foreshadow of what Jesus was going to endure at the hands of wicked men. You might remember Isaiah 53, 8, hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Christ came to pass, as the says to us, that the Messiah was, quote, taken away by what? Oppression and judgment. It was a judicial death. He wasn't mugged on the side of the road. He was convicted wrongly of a crime and sentenced to death. Jesus Christ, our Lord, endured the most unjust of judgments at the hands of wicked judges and rulers so that you and I might be saved from the just judgment of a holy God and the wrath of God that our sins rightly deserve. David is just a a foreshadowing of that very thing. These wicked judges or rulers that David talks about in our psalm, he says in verse 3, they are estranged from the womb. From from the beginning, before they were even born, they were wicked, he says. He says, they go astray from birth, speaking lies, verse 3. What's he saying? He's saying, it's in their very natures to be wicked. They've been, before birth, they were wicked this way. Now in saying that, David is speaking also of the depravity of all of mankind outside of Christ, outside of Jesus Christ, all of us, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, were dead in our trespasses and sins. In verse 3 in Ephesians 2, he says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's all of us outside of Christ, dead in sin, children of wrath by nature. Not only that, but he describes these, these wicked rulers and judges uh, uh, by the deadly nature of what they do. He, he talks about them in verse 4 of having venom like the venom of a serpent deadly a deadly snake not the kind of snake you pick up and show your friends when you're a little you know there's the kind that you as soon as you see it you would uh, jump away from it says that not only that but they're they're intractable in their wickedness they refuse to repent and turn david talks about them being like a deaf adder an adder is a is a venomous snake Uh, And the deaf adder can't be influenced by the sound of the snake charmer. Remember that if you watch cartoons or movies back then that you'd have a snake charmer, the the cobra's in the basket and he'd be playing the flute or whatever, and it would kind of charm the snake and get him to do what he wants him to do. He's saying they're like, they're like a snake, they're like a deaf snake that doesn't listen and can't be influenced by the sound of the charmer. You might know in the New Testament, Jesus called the Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees brood of what? A brood of vipers. John the Baptist called them the same thing. That's not an accident. John the Baptist and Jesus both called the members of the Sanhedrin uh, serpents and a brood of of vipers. Same language that David uses here in Psalm 58. Well, that brings us to the second thing in our psalm in verses 6 through 9. That's David's imprecation uh, against the, uh, the wicked. Now, imprecation is a strange word to most of us. It just means that he's praying for God to judge them. He's praying for God to put a stop to their, to their evil. What does David do when faced with the wickedness of unjust judges or rulers? What would he have you and I to do? What's left for the godly and the righteous to do? Well, David shows us in that he, what, what did he do? He prayed. Did he take vengeance into his own hands? No. He trusted God who judges justly. He prayed. And in this case, his prayer was a prayer of imprecation. He prayed to God that God might judge the wicked and put an end to their evil devices. Now you might be reading the psalm this morning as we were going through it and thinking to yourself, I didn't know there was such a thing like this in the Bible. Well, prayer imprec- imp- imprecatory psalms are throughout the Psalter. They're not all happy clappy psalms and songs. A lot of them have involved this kind of this kind of prayer. In fact, Psalm 3, David prays to God to rescue him from the wicked and he calls on God just like our psalm here does to, quote, break the teeth of the wicked. It's like punch them in the mouth, God. Break their teeth, remove the remove their bite, remove them their ability to do evil. Likewise, Psalm 7, David calls upon the Lord to arise in your anger and lift yourself up against the fury of his enemies. He prays for God to judge his enemies, to judge the wicked. Such prayers in the Psalms might make you and I a little bit uncomfortable, But I think, as all scripture is, uh, these kind of Psalms, just like the rest of scripture, must be, we must think of them as being there for our edification and our instruction. God, God put this Psalm, as awkward as it may feel to us, here for a good reason for our benefit, so we would know how to respond when faced with things like david did you have to wonder if some of the protestant reformers who were persecuted and even even martyred for their faith and for their work in the gospel might have had this psalm in mind very often and prayed it to god that god might defend his church and put the, put an end to the the ways of of the wicked now you and i what does jesus say we're to love our enemies and seek to do them good we're to pray for our enemies are we not are we to pray for our enemies? Yes, we, we are. We are to love our enemies. And, and yet God is still the judge of all the earth, as, as Abraham says in eight, Genesis eighteen twenty five, And God is just as glorified in his just judgment of the wicked as he is in showing mercy in the salvation of sinners. God is not embarrassed by his judgment. We must leave vengeance to God, and part of leaving vengeance to God is to pray for it rather than taking it into our own hands. Part of trusting ourselves to the God who judges justly is praying and not taking vengeance into our own hands. Now, the bulk of what David prays about in these verses is the, the violence and the evil intentions of the wicked. And what is he praying for God to do? What's the, what's the basic idea behind this kind of a prayer? It's not hating his enemies so much as it is God putting a stop to their evil ways. God putting a stop to their persecution of his People, to break their teeth is to render them harmless. To to blunt the arrows of the wicked when they take their aim is to remove the danger of those arrows from their intended targets. For God to sweep them away before the pots, as he says, can begin to feel the heat from the thorns uh, is to prevent prevent their evil from coming to pass that odd phrase probably means you know you would start a fire with kindling whatever little sticks and loose branches were laying around and probably the weeds and thorns and things is what you grab and you put them under to start the fire he's saying God sweep the the wicked away before the pot can even start to get hot before the flame hits the bottom of the pot just take them away and God is the one that can do that Uh, so he's praying for the the evil for their, their wicked designs to not come to pass for God to stop what they're doing Now, David did not pray these things that we're reading in this text, in the psalm, in a spirit of self-righteousness. He didn't pray in a spirit of revenge. That would be sinful. And so neither should we. Matthew Henry says in these verses, he says that we have here David's prayers against his enemies and all the enemies of God's church and people, for it is as such that he looks upon them and so that he was actuated by a public spirit in praying against them and not by any private revenge what's he saying what 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 does he mean by a public spirit david was praying for the good of god's people including himself but this wasn't hey i don't like these people god do something bad to them it wasn't it wasn't self righteousness it wasn't a spirit of personal revenge it was praying for god's glory and for the deliverance of god's people from wickedness because what did that proverb say at the beginning of the service that when the wicked rule the people groan it's a burden it's a bad thing. David's concern was the glory of God and the relief of the godly. And so that should be the same thing. Those should be the same concerns that guide us today if we take imprecatory prayers and, and put them upon our lips. We should make sure that it's not a spirit of revenge personally, but it's, it's praying for God's glory and for the good and deliverance of God's people. That's what David's praying for in this prayer, and so should we if we were to take these things as our model for for prayers in such situations. Now the third thing we see in the psalm at the very end, the last two verses, verses 10 and 11, is David's praise for God's just judgment upon the wicked. That's what he says here. We see David praising God for that judgment. He's kind of looking down, he's kind of looking at it as if it already happened. That's the kind of faith he has that God is going to right all wrongs. And, and David speaks of two different groups of people who are going to witness God's just judgments, and he gives us their responses to seeing those judgments. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, divides these groups up into saints and sinners, which I find to be helpful because you can remember it. Verse 10, he's talking about the saints, the believers, God's people. And verse 11 is about the sinners. The saints are to be, he says, encouraged and comforted by God's judgments. That may sound like a strange, a strange thing for him to say, but read the book of Revelation as we plan to do uh, in, in Sundays not too far from now. Going, through, starting to go through that book, uh, those who have been suffering real persecution, even knowing martyrdom among them for the faith, uh, don't, aren't confused by that statement at all. That the saints are to be encouraged and comforted by God's just judgments, and the sinners are to be convicted and converted by them. So God's judgments in this life have have good good things that come as a result of them. The first group is the saints or the righteous. Verse 10, that David says, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. And this is even more uncomfortable. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. It's a pretty startling thing. Now remember, David was a man of war. David had gone to battle for God's people, literally. Uh, he took sword in hand and defended God's people in the name of the Lord, and so David's got these images in his head uh, from probably from actual experience, but he says that the righteous are going to rejoice when they, when he sees the wicked and bathe his feet in the blood of of, of the wicked. Now, Proverbs twenty four seventeen says, "Do not rejoice when your enemy falls." So, what do you? Is David contradicting Proverbs twenty four seventeen? Is he rejoicing at the fall of his enemy in and of? Itself, likewise, the book of Ezekiel twice says that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is the psalm here teaching us to take pleasure in the death of the wicked? I, I don't think it is. I don't think that that's what it is at all. But there's, there's a difference between rejoicing at, at the fall of your enemy and rejoicing when you see God righting wrongs. When you see God delivering his people from the things that the wicked do Uh, Against them, So the the response of the righteous will be to rejoice when he sees God take vengeance upon the wicked. And talking about bathing his feet in the blood of the wicked, I think the he that he's referring to there is the righteous, the same group of people that he talked about in the first half of that verse. Now, um, bathing one's feet in the blood of the wicked kind of reminds me of uh, the first line from the battle hymn of the Republic. If you're familiar with that hymn, it said, I won't sing it. Uh, It says, "'Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord,' He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful, light, faithful lightning of his terrible, swift sword. His truth is marching on. It's the image of a wine press, and and God, and, and God stamping out the wine press uh, in in his wrath. That same language is found in Scripture, isn't it? Revelation fourteen, verses nineteen to twenty. It says, "So the angel swung his sickle across the earth. It's harvest time, right? And gathered the grape harvest of earth." And threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It's a pretty violent image. And it's in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament. Uh, Revelation 19.15 also talks about the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, of God the Almighty. Now, God's people are going to rejoice and praise God for the glory of his justice so much, just as much as we rejoice and praise him for his grace. You might not think that right now, but that's what's going to happen. We will in no way be embarrassed at God's just judgment. We should not be embarrassed that we serve a God who judges on the earth. Charles Spurgeon writes, commenting on verse 10, he says, "...there is nothing in Scripture of that sympathy with God's enemies..." which modern traders are so fond of parading as the finest species of benevolence. We shall say amen, we shall at the last say amen to the condemnation of the wicked and feel no disposition to question the ways of God with the impenitent. I know that's a hard thing to hear, but on on the day of judgment, that's going to be true. There will not be a, a single believer in Christ in heaven looking at God's just judgment and shaking our heads and saying, Oh, God shouldn't have done that. God's justice will be glorifying uh, to him. His his judgment glorifies God just as much as his saving of the sinners like us does as well. God will not be mocked. He will show himself to be the God who judges. God is still the God who judges. He judged in the Old Testament, He judged the world the world with a flood, didn't he? And God still judges, and God will one day judge. He judges the wicked in this life in many ways. That's you know that's really the, what this psalm is aiming at first. It's not just the final judgment that, that David has in view here. It's in this life. God often judges in many ways uh, the wicked in this life and at various times and ways according to the counsel of his will, according to his infinite wisdom and justice. And, and in doing that, he reveals to all who have the eyes to see and ears to hear that he indeed, what does it say rewards he rewards the righteous uh, and just as much as he judges on and rules on the earth that's that 's what the, the what the sinners see they see that there's a reward for the righteous that there is a God who judges, and it says that there is a God verse eleven who judges on the earth that 's what sinners see when God judges in this life they see that wickedness does not go on and on unpunished, and they see that God does reward those who seek him and seek his will. And so, if you're in Christ by faith today, uh, you no longer need to fear the judgment and vengeance of God for your sins. Why? For Jesus Christ has borne the just judgment and wrath of God in your place. The wrath of God that we justly deserve, if you're a Christian, Jesus bore that in your place on the cross. And for those of us who are in Christ by faith, who are believers in Christ today, uh, our God, the judge, uh, think about this, our God, the judge, is pleased to reward you for your good works and acts of obedience prompted by faith, and by faith working through love. The Belgic Confession, we looked at this last Sunday night, Article 24 uh, has a little paragraph and it says it this way, it says, therefore, we do good works but not to merit by them, for what can we merit? No, we are indebted to God for the good works that we do, and not he to us, since it is he who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us therefore attend to what is written, when ye shall have done all things that you were commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which it is our duty to do. We cannot in any way ever put God in our debt. If you do good works, guess who moved you to do those good works? God did. Who gets the credit and glory for any of it? God does. And if we were to do everything that God requires us to do, if we were, we don't ever do this. If you were to obey for one day of your life, if I was to obey for one single day of my life, every commandment of God, if I, I've never done this, you've never done this. If you were to perfectly obey God in all things for 24 hours and, and do good works, guess what? You've done the bare minimum. You've done what you were already obligated and owe God to do. God hasn't earned an extra penny by our good works, so to speak. And here's where that article finishes. It says this, In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. By God's grace, he crowns his own gifts and graces. He rewards that which he worked in you to begin with. It's all by grace, even the rewards God gives his people. What a wonder of grace that God is pleased to crown his own gifts and graces in his redeemed people. Will. In conclusion, if you are not yet in Christ by faith, if you are still abiding in your sins and abiding under the wrath of God, uh, we, we use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, and we, I plead with you this morning, be, be reconciled to God. That's what Paul says, that's what we say now. Be reconciled to God while there is time. Turn from your sins, turn back to God through faith in Jesus Christ And you will be saved from the wrath to come. And as David here in the psalm, I think, would teach us, let the judgments of God on this earth through history and even in our own day teach you that there is indeed a God who judges on this earth. There is a God who rules over all things and will judge. And one day that God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, will come again to judge the living and the dead. Hebrews 9, verses 27 to 28 puts it this way. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, no reincarnation, As it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes what? Judgment. Judgment. That's all of us. It's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ came the first time to deal with sin, to offer himself up in humility, uh, to, to, to die on the cross for, for the sins of his people. He's going to come a second time with glory, not in humility, to judge the living and, and the dead. If you're in Christ by faith, think about that passage in Hebrews. If you're in Christ by faith, you have peace with God. All of your sins have been forgiven because of Christ's death in your place. When he offered himself on the cross, as Hebrews says, to bear the sins of many, Think about this. You are so reconciled to God if you're a Christian this morning that you can eagerly await the return of Christ the judge. That's what Hebrews that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He's going to appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You can eagerly await the judgment of God. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the just judge of all the earth, the living and the dead, if you're in Christ. That's how reconciled to God you are by the death and resurrection of His Son. What an amazing thing to say. In Christ, we are so saved and so reconciled to God that we can eagerly await the return of Christ the judge when He comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. Do you, do you have that kind of confidence this morning? Do you eagerly await the return of Christ? Do you? Are you able to eagerly await with Peace and joy, the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. You can if you turn to Christ by faith alone in him alone. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We know that uh, we just scratched the surface of, of much of it. We know that there's, there's much injustice in, on the earth. There always has been. And until you, you're, you come again, Lord, we know that that will continue to be the case. But we praise you that you are the judge of all the earth and you always do what is right. Lord we we praise you that your justice will not be mocked that you do all through history you have judged from time to time uh, the wicked on this earth they think they get away with things and so they keep on in their in their sin and rebellion against you and the persecution of your people and the people groan when the wicked rule but we know that you still judge and we also know that one day you will judge finally that all these other judgments upon the earth throughout history have been warning shots of the final judgment to come and uh, warnings uh, to, to turn many to repentance to you. We thank you that you have, we have no doubt that you have turned many to yourself. You've granted repentance to many when they've seen you send judgments on the earth in history, that you've spared them from that final judgment and condemnation because you've turned them to repentance and faith in Christ. We thank you that by your grace alone, that 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 those of us in this room who know you by faith in Christ can can eagerly await the return of Christ, The judge of the living and the dead, that we can eagerly await ourself, our final salvation that comes through Him, that we will see your just judgment, will give you praise and honor and glory and, and, and give the whole universe will know that there is a judge, there is a God who judges and that your judgment is just and that all the evils will be undone and rectified on that final day. Lord, we pray that if anybody here this morning is still in their sins, and is still abiding under your wrath, that you might open their eyes even this morning, that you would give them grace to see their sins, to see their need for the Savior, and they would look to him and have life eternal and abundant, and the forgiveness of sins, that they too might be able to eagerly await the return of Christ, because he's no longer their judge, but their Savior and Redeemer. And we ask all these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.